Would you please turn in Ephesians, uh, in your Bibles, to Ephesians chapter 1. We're going to be covering verses 3 through 6 tonight, but I'm actually going to read verses 3 through 14 because uh, in the original language, it's one long sentence. Um, So hear the reading of God's word. Apostle Paul just found out who he's writing to. He's writing to saints those who are holy and beloved and faithful in Christ Jesus. What does he say to them? He says, grace to you and peace from God our Father and Lord Jesus Christ. And he says this in verse 3 and following. Blessed be the God God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him in love, by predestining us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he graciously bestowed on us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our transgressions according to the riches of his grace, which he caused to abound to us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in him for administration of the fullness of the times, that is, the summing up of all things in Christ, things in the heavens and things on the earth in him. In him we also have been made an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, to the end that we who first have hoped in Christ would be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, after listening to the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise who is given as a pledge of our inheritance unto the redemption of God's own possession, to the praise of his glory. This is God's holy word. Let's pray one more time. God, I ask for your help to see what your spirit inspired, what you caused to be written down. Help us to come under your word. Lord, we we submit our own hearts, our own thoughts, our own desires to you. We, we confess at the outset, you know what is best, and you are best, and you do good, and you do all things well. And so, Lord, we ask now, would you give us sight to be able to see what you have spoken, to be able to grasp the depths of this. We ask this all for the glory of you, for the glory of your Son, in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Well, these verses are particularly precious to me uh, because these are verses that um, I once went in to a church service in college coming in just unlovable, full of sin, full of shame, having every reason in the world to assume that God didn't love me Nobody else loved me, and they probably shouldn't. 
both because of the things I had done and the things that had been done to me, I had come to that conclusion. And I left knowing that doing, owing to nothing in me, I was loved and chosen and accepted before anything else. And that's what I pray you find out today as well. So I don't want to spend too much time on my own story. I want to get into this story. And what we have in front of us, as I mentioned, is one sentence in the Greek, verses 3 through 14. Now, some people sometimes say that, and I know what happened to me the first time I heard that. That's one sentence? How in the world am I ever going to understand anything about this? But what I want us to understand a little bit is, uh, while it's true, it's one sentence, one continuous thought, there's some markers that Paul has out that help us to be able to discern what he's talking about. There's actually a repeated phrase that comes up three different times that gives a triune shape to Paul's long sentence, verses 3 through 14. And the phrase is this, to the praise of his glory. He says that in verse 6. He says, to the praise of the glory of his grace. Speaking of the glory of the Father. And he says in verse 12, to the praise of his, to the praise of the glory of his grace, uh, sorry, that we would be to the praise of his glory, speaking of the Son. In verse 14, that there would be glory uh, to the Spirit, that uh, the Spirit has been given to us as a pledge of our inheritance unto the redemption of God's own possession, what for? To the praise of his glory glory. And so what we have here and what we're going to do in the next three weeks is we're going to talk about how glory is to be given to the Father, just like we sing. How glory is to be given to the Son and how glory is to be given to the Spirit. There's particular actions in each section, verses 3 through 6, verses 7 through 12, and verses 13 through 14, that are attributed to a specific person, either the Father, the Son, or the Spirit. And yet, something I want to keep in front of us is that doesn't mean that the other persons of the Trinity have nothing to do with the verses, aren't found in verses 3 through 6. That the Father is focused on in verses 3 through 6, but the Spirit and the Son are there as well, right? Because actually, every act of our triune God is an act of the whole God. We see that in creation. What happened? Well, God spoke the word, and the Spirit hovered over the deeps. That's what happened. That the Father spoke by the word, and His Spirit was hovering over the deeps. And we see in salvation, what is happening there? Well, the Son is dying on the cross. Why? Because He was sent by the Father to do that. And He was upheld by the power of the Spirit. What's happening in our sanctification, what's happening in every single thing that God is doing is all of God acting. And yet, God in his wisdom sometimes helps us see and attributes particular actions to one person. We start from the very beginning to get a little bit mysterious, but one church father from a long time ago, Gregory of Nazianzus, he says it really well. This is what he says. He says, no sooner do I conceive of the one, speaking of any person of the Trinity, then I am illumined by the splendor of the three. No sooner do I distinguish them, than I am carried back to the one. What's he saying there? He's saying this. He's saying this. 
when you think of the Father, you can't help but start to think about the Son. And when you think about the Spirit of God, and you really just start to get your mind around the Spirit of God, what happens? All your thoughts are drawn to the Father and to the Son. The one illumines the others. And when we see one truly, we're seeing God as he truly is. It's a wondrous thing. It's, it's from the fact that this God is eternal, that while we are one being in one person, he is one being in three persons. It, it's almost too much for us, but God has revealed these things to us. So what do we see, though, in Ephesians 1, 3, 1, 3 through 6? Well, in Ephesians 1, verses 3 through 6, there's three features of the Father's election before the foundation of the world. And these three features are given so that you would know that you are chosen. So that you, Christian, would be holy and so that you would praise the Father for the glory of His grace. In a word, He chose you if you are a Christian. And don't worry, we're going to talk about how, how can I know I'm a Christian, but just get your mind around this. He chose you so that you would know grace. The three features are this. We'll unpack each one. The Father chose us before anything. Secondly, the Father chose us so that he'd be our Father. And thirdly, that the Father chose us according to his good pleasure. And lastly, that all of this, we're going to see all of this, it's to be end up in praise to God for the glory of his grace. Before we get into those three features, though, we need to unpack verse 3 because verse 3 stands kind of as a summary and it, it stands at the forefront of what Paul's going to do for everything else. He talks about all blessings in verse 3. So before we dive into the Father electing to save sinners and predestining for adoption, we want to understand this, which it stands as the opening to this great doxological, which just means worshipful, full of praise sentence. Verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. So Paul opens with a eulogy. Literally, that's what it is uh, in the Greek. It's a good word. He says, blessed be you, be you God. And for most of us, we, we have a eulogy at the end of a life. But for Paul, he says at the beginning of this, I have a good word to say about our God. He says, blessed be God. And not just any abstract God, but he says, blessed be the God, the one who is the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He says, I ascribe to you blessing. Now, why would Paul bless God? Why, why would he do that? Well, he tells us it's because he's blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places 
in Christ. So what this means, I want you to know, if you're a Christian, is that you have all the spiritual blessings of Christ. Now, he might, he might choose to give a gift to one person of preaching, a gift of serving. But, but what we're talking about is the inheritance that you have in Christ. It means that there's no tier system in Christianity. Okay? Every Christian has every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. It's the priesthood of all believers. That there is no one who's a Christian who only has some of it. There's nobody who only has some of the Father. There's nobody who only has some of Christ, only has this much of the Spirit, but they have that much of the Spirit. There, there's no such thing as that. There's no person who they have, they have like 70% of the righteousness of Christ, but that person, they have 100%. This person has, has 80% of the forgiveness offered, but they have 100%. If you are a Christian, you have every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. It's why we can say, with Paul, all things are mine in Christ. But note the referent word there. It's, it is spiritual blessings. Spiritual blessings. And I pray we're all on the same page, but if not, no, we need to know this. Jesus never promised in this life that you'd be wealthy and happy and beautiful and without pain and rich. He never promised that. He did not say that. He said, there are un unfathomable, endless blessings coming to you in the new heavens and the new earth. But Jesus did not come so that we could live our best life now, here. That is not why he came. These are spiritual blessings in Christ, in the heavenly places. That doesn't mean that you don't really get any blessings right now, and when you get to heaven, that's when you get them. No, it's, it's referring to the realm that they belong to. These are spiritual things. Our blessings are in the heavens, and they all come to us. Why? Only because we're united to Christ. That's what those two little words mean. In the heavenly places, in Christ. Now, Paul's going to go on to give us, in verses 4 through 14, all the blessings we have in Christ. And here's the real big thing I want you to be able to leave with tonight. I want you to leave knowing you are rich in Christ. Because maybe you came thinking that God is actually better to some people than he is to you. I want you to see the treasures you have because of the Father. And if you don't know Christ, I want you to know that he is the answer to your deepest problem. Michael Allen, on this verse, he, he writes the following. He said, while we may be overwhelmed and waylaid by what's mundane or worse, in Christ we have all spiritual or godly goodness in the heavenly places. But what exactly are these spiritual blessings? Paul tells us in verse 4. 
And this is where we see the first feature of our text. First, spiritual blessing. The Father chose us before anything. Let's look at verse 4. Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. So Paul opens with the words, just as. That means that this is a, this is a comparison statement. You might think of a, uh, somebody who says, you look just like your mother. What are they saying? They look, you look really similar to your mother. Or in the ESV, it says, even as, right? So maybe a person's really good at piano, and you say, you play even as Bach played. That's what's going on here. So Paul says, you have all spiritual blessings even just as, what is it? Well, I want to compare it for you, and I want to show you what it is. And here's what it is. The first spiritual blessing that Paul declares to believers comes as he thinks of the Father. He says it's just as he, that is the Father, chose us in him, that is the Son, before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. Now, there is much to unpack here. The sentence, for crying out loud, it begins before time began, right? But I want you to know, I want you to know that you can understand really clearly exactly what Paul wants you to know right here. Okay, Deuteronomy 29, 29 says that the secret things belong to the Lord. But the revealed things belong to us. So what does that mean? That means that there are some things, there are some questions we can ask that God hasn't told us the answer to. But what God has revealed in his word, that belongs to us. And so Paul means something here. And what he means, we can actually grasp. We can actually understand. And what Paul means here is this. If you are a Christian, it's because The Father chose you. He chose you. Now, questions are going to come, but please let those words sink in. He chose you. There's three particular details that Paul lays out about the Father's electing love, about his choice. He says he he chose at a particular time, he chose in a particular way, and he chose for a particular reason. First, he chose at a particular time. And that time, as the text says, is before the foundation of the world. Before time began, before creation. And before time, God chose us in him. He chose before God created anything or anyone. That is to say, the triune God. When when there was nothing of this universe, and all there was, was God forever. At that time, he chose to have a people for himself, redeemed for himself. That's what this is saying uh, for us when he, existing in perfect unity, chose before creation to save a great multitude of sinners. We get glimpses into this in John 17, where Jesus is praying with the Father. Those whom you gave me before the world, 
I pray for them. We see it in John 10. We see it in John 6. We see it in Acts 18. Some of these scriptures we'll get to dive into a little in a little bit. And I want to be really faithful to God's holy word. I believe this word is holy. And so I want to be really faithful to this. And what it doesn't say here, what it doesn't say here or anywhere else in all of Scripture, and if you know of a place, come and please help me see it. But it doesn't say here or anywhere else that what these words mean is that God actually looked down, so to speak, the corridors of time and saw those who would choose him and then he chose them. That's not what this text is saying. What this says is the Father chose before anyone ever even had a thought. As, as I heard Steve Lawson once say, God never looked down the corridor of time and learned anything. Right? What we're talking about here is the omnipresent. That means everywhere. Omniscient. That means all-knowing omnipotent, that means all-powerful, omnisapient, which is a word I just learned this last week, which means all-wise. This is the God we're talking about. And Paul says before anything, and knowing everything, and being moved by nothing outside of himself because nothing existed outside of himself, God chose those whom he would save. Now, people sometimes say, well, no, God foreknew those who would choose him, and he chose them. So I want you to turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 8, because I want us to look at this text, because I think when we are able to read through the text of Scripture, it actually clears up for us. Romans chapter 8, starting at verse 29. Verse 28, maybe most of our favorite verses, we know that God works all things together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purposes. Verse 29, because, now, this is called the golden chain of redemption. This means that each, each statement is a chain linked to the other one, okay? And this is what the text of Scripture says. Those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. So what I want us to notice here is what the text of Scripture says is those people whom God foreknew, he predestined. And those people he predestined, he called. And those people whom he called, he justified. So that we can, and that he also glorified them, so that we can draw a line all the way from those whom he foreknew to those whom he justified. Nowhere in the scripture does it say that God foreknew everyone and then, pre, and then predestined some of them. Actually, there's a great case to be made that this word foreknew actually doesn't mean just that he had knowledge of people, but is a word that refers to the love of God. We see that from the very first pages of Scripture, that Adam knew his wife Eve and she conceived. That knowledge in the Bible is not always just intellectual facts, but that it's actually an 
intimate relationship. Those whom he foreknew, he also predestined, called, justified, glorified. I think of another place. You can turn to Daniel chapter 4. What we have here is Nebuchadnezzar, a man who exalted himself. And then what did God do? God made him go around walking on all fours like an animal, eating grass. And then God gave his sanity back to him. Verse 34, he says this, But at the end of those days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, I lifted up my eyes toward heaven, and my knowledge returned to me, and I blessed the Most High, and praised and honored him who lives forever. Here's another man praising, blessing God. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation, and all the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. But he does according to his will in the host of heaven, among, and among the inhabitants of the earth And no one can strike against his hand. No one can say to him, what have you done? In the ESV, it says this. He does according to his will among the hosts of heaven, among the inhabitants of the earth. None can say his hand. No one can say to him, what have you done? Throughout scripture, it's the consistent testimony. He chose us. That's what this text says. And he chose us in a particular way. It is in him, it is in Christ that God chose. This means that Christ would be the means of salvation and the ends of the end of salvation. It means that we'd be saved through Christ, his work. We'd be saved to Christ. We'd be saved in Christ. That he chose that people should be saved, how? By being united to his son. So that when he looks at these people, what he sees is his son. He sees them in him. And so we can truly say that we are in him. Now these, these things we've been talking about, they probably lead to two questions that are popping up into your head. The first is, isn't, this, isn't all this talk going to lead to some serious unholy living? He chose us. So, what does that mean? What does that mean about my life? What does that mean about tomorrow? What does that mean I should do? And secondly, secondly probably the question is, doesn't, hey, wait a minute. Doesn't that make evangelism pointless? Now, I can address the first of these right now, and the second one will come a little later. The first question, doesn't this lead to unholy living, is answered, it's resolved in the particular reason that he chose us for. Let's complete verse 4. It says that he, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. That we would be holy and blameless before him. God's election does not lead to unholiness but rather it guarantees holiness. Paul's saying the purpose of election is for holiness. The great Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, he said this. It's a little bit of a lengthy quote, but I think it's worth it. 
being chosen and being holy are inseparable. However much doctrine a man may know, however much he may contend for election and predestination, and aren't there some of those people out in the world of whom I am the foremost? Uh, If there's no element of holiness in him, he's not chosen. It's possible to be intellectually orthodox and yet to not be a Christian. The man who is chosen is chosen to holiness. And if there's no evidence of holiness in his life, it's proof that he has never been chosen. These are solemn thoughts, and yet they're inevitable in light of this statement of Scripture. So we see two things that Paul is saying from these words, that we would be holy and blameless before him. The first is we must be holy. And the second is that we will become holy. This disarms us of two wrong ways of thinking. The first is to think that because God chose, it's completely irrelevant how I live. I can go on living my life however I want. He made his choice and I just get to do what I want. The other is thinking that God might not actually get me to the finish line. I I know he chose, I know he did that, I know he's powerful, but I don't know about me. I don't know if I could really be holy, if I could really be that kind of person. God chose before the foundation of the world that you would be holy and blameless. This is guaranteed, and as we saw last week, it's declared from the start. Positionally, you are holy. If you are a Christian, and practically, you are growing in holiness. Though it looks like a stock market graph, you are growing in holiness. And I don't know about this economy, but I do know in the economy of God, you really do go up and to the right and reach the finish line of holiness. But maybe you say, but I I have secret sin. And if I'm being honest, I sometimes wonder if I am a Christian. Well, what a Christian does with that is they confess it and they trust in Jesus. And I want you to know even tonight you can grab someone and you can say, hey, I need to talk to you. And you can confess your sins. And if you confess your sins, he will forgive you of your sins and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. The Father chose us that we would be holy, that is set apart and blameless. Not not one charge can stick against the ones whom God has chosen. Secondly, second feature is that God, the Father, chose us so that he'd be our Father. Verse 5, by predestining us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will. This verse is really a continuation. It's a commentary on the three words, he chose us. How did he choose us? By predestining us to adoption through his son, through Jesus Christ. It's really a verse that's talking about the means of how he chose us. It's opening up those two words, what does it mean to be in him? 
those two words are like the deepest well that we could ever find in this world. It's the sinkhole that goes deeper and deeper and deeper. And it doesn't matter how long you swim down into it. You're not reaching the bottom yet. He chose us by predestining us to adoption. He elected us by choosing to predetermine, not that just we would be saved, but that we would be adopted into his family. So don't miss this point. It's not a cold, sovereign despot who elects and predestines people. Says, ah, I guess I should just do it. Kind of turns his head away and says, bare minimum, you're not going to hell. That's not what this God does. The God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, from his fatherly heart, so to speak, he chose and in love he predestines, not to a bare existence, but to adoption as sons. Those two words at the very beginning, in love, there's a debate about, do they go with before him, that we should be holy and blameless before him in love, or should it go with by predestining us? And I actually think they should go with the by predestining us. And the reason is Romans 8. Because we see the first thing is he foreknew. And I believe there is an idea of love there seen throughout the scriptures. And I believe what Paul is saying here is in love he predestined us. In love he did this. Two words that we need to talk about though are predestination and adoption. The first, predestination. It's a word that simply means to decide beforehand. It has a prefix that means before, and the next one says decision. It means that he destined, not just the end, not just the destination, but also the means. The word is actually pro-orazzo, and the only reason I tell you that is because you could recognize a word we have in English, which is horizon, horizon. And what a horizon is, is actually the line between the heavens and the earth. It's that whole view, that whole vantage point. It's not just one point on it, but it is all of it. And what it's speaking to here is that God doesn't only choose that some people would get to a point, but he chooses the means people would get there by. Now, it stretches our minds, but we can understand part of this, that he chose beforehand. We see the prophet Isaiah say, who's a God like you who declares the end from the beginning? Who's like you? God, how how can you name Cyrus hundreds of years before the guy's even born? We see it in Acts 2, verse 23, that Jesus was delivered up by the hands of the Romans, by the the Jews gave him over, the Romans killed him. That That was means and also according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, that these things go together. I just want you to think of all the things that had to line up for you to hear the gospel and believe it. And then I want you to try to convince yourself that every single last one of those was just a happenstance. You just happened to be born into the family that you were born into. No, the the Bible says in Psalm 139 that 
all of my days were written in your book of life. Secondly, adoption. And there's a reason I want you to see in our text, it says adoption as sons, and that's really important. Because that, in the original word for adoption, it actually includes the word son. That you were, you were adopted for as a son, or you were adopted for sonship. And the reason is because in this culture, it was adoption of the highest class. That unfortunately, actually back then, a daughter being adopted had less rights. But a son who was adopted, a son who was adopted and treated as a firstborn, he had all the rights of a firstborn genetic son. That's why I'm actually against some of the gender-neutral Bible translations because I want all of our sisters to know that God doesn't have like adoption as brothers and sisters. No, he has a particular reason for telling you he adopted you like a son, which doesn't mean that you become a boy in some way. What it means is you have all the blessings and benefits, the highest rank of adoption. And adoption, it's one of the most beautiful metaphors in the entire Bible. Because it pictures so wonderfully what God did for us. He said, I choose you. And that choice was, I choose you to be in my family. I don't just choose you to not go to hell. I choose you to be my son. I choose you to be my daughter. You have all the rights of my son. You're in the family now. You're my son. You're my daughter. J.I. Packer says, Adoption is the highest privilege that the gospel offers. It's higher even than justification. James Buchanan, the only reason I throw out that name is he wrote a book called The Doctrine of Justification. It's believed to be the greatest book on justification. You know what he says? He says the same exact thing that J.I. Packer says. He says this is higher, adoption's higher, because adoption includes all of justification but you're a son, too. You're a daughter. But how does one know if they are adopted? Which is to ask, how, how do I know if I'm predestined? How do I know if I'm elected? Should, should we evangelize if this is all going to happen? Well, I have, I have three places in the Bible I want to point you to. The first is, Quickly, it's just right in the context of our own chapter, verse 13. In him, you also, after listening to the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise. How do you know if you're elect? Well, you hear the gospel and you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. I want to just give you an overview of Romans 1 through 9 and then tell you what happens in chapter 10, okay? Romans 1 through 9 is a story of how God justifies the ungodly. And it reaches the climax in Romans chapter 8. And what we were already looking at, all the things we were talking about. Those whom he foreknew, he predestined, he called, he justified, he glorified. And then in Romans 9, Paul gets really into it. He says that some people say that's unfair. And he says, no, God is not unfair. He is God alone. And we can't say to him, why did you choose it that way? What have you done? That we're like clay and he's the potter. 
But then in Romans 10, what comes next? What comes next is Paul saying, I would be cut off if I could for the sake of those who are not yet Christians. He says, how will people believe unless they hear the gospel? And how will they hear the gospel unless there's a preacher sent to them? And how will they hear a preacher unless the preacher is sent by people? So what Paul says is not only has God ordained the end, that some would be saved, but he has ordained the means. And that is through the preaching of the gospel. The two go hand in hand, in tandem. I love Acts chapter 18, verses 8 through 9. I got this from our dear brother Hanaro. But don't tell him that. In, in, in Acts chapter 18, Paul's in the city of Corinth. And you, you've read 1 Corinthians, right? Church is going crazy. And just imagine what it was like before there even really was the established church there. And so Paul, he's getting threats. He's, uh, he's afraid. He thinks that he should maybe leave the place. There's only a few people saved. But it says this in verse 9. And the Lord said to Paul in the night by a vision, don't be afraid. But go on speaking and do not be silent, for I am with you, and no man will lay a hand on you in order to harm you, for I have many people in this city. What does he say? You stay parked right there, because I have more who will believe in my name. What we see here is that the electing grace of God and the predestination that God has chosen doesn't stifle our missions efforts and our evangelization efforts. Rather, it stokes the flame and the fire. Uh, there's going to be a podcast coming out soon, an interview with Steve Lawson. He says a lot of this a lot better than I can. So you go listen to that. How can I know? The way to know you're adopted is believing in Jesus Christ alone. I truly mean that. J.I. Packer, he described the, the gospel as adoption through propitiation. Figure, why not throw one more big word in tonight? What's propitiation? It's a sacrifice that satisfies. That it's being brought into the family of God by the sacrifice of the Son. So I want to ask you, do you believe that his blood was sufficient to atone for your sins? Do you believe he is who he said he is? Do you believe that he's powerful enough to cleanse you? Do you trust him when he said on the cross, it is finished? If you believe that he's a sufficient savior and you come to him with nothing but empty hands, rejoice. Rejoice because you are in him. Why do some come and others not? It's not because we're better. It's not because those who come made a better choice owing to their own intellect, owing to they just kind of had a better moral compass. The only reason anyone ever would be saved is because of God. 
And the text says all of this happens according to the good pleasure of his will. It's our last point. The Father chose you because it was his good pleasure. Look with me at the end of verse 5. By predestining us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself according to the good pleasure of his will. Now, I, I confess I've wrestled with some of the toughest questions, just like you probably maybe still are right now in your mind about predestination, about election. But I honestly mean this. I don't know of a harder question personally than why would God choose to save me with all of my sin? Knowing all the ways I've rebelled against him continually, hearing some good sermons, knowing that I am no better than anyone else, but I also portrayed myself as if I was better than everyone else. Why would God choose to save a sinner like me? text says this, because of the good pleasure of his will. It has everything to do with he, who he is, and it has nothing to do with who I am. It is all about him. It is nothing about you or me. It was according to the good pleasure of his will. And we'll see in verse 11 that all things are worked according to the counsel of his will, and spoiler alert, that all things, what does it mean? It means all things, everything. I had to write a big paper on that last semester. And what I found out was all things is a great translation for all things. This is what grace is. God's sovereign benevolence to save those who have no claim on salvation. What does grace look like? It looks exactly like Jesus Christ coming into this world to save sinners. So you can have immense assurance and comfort because God chose you. Have any of you ever bought a lemon of a car? A car you bought and just, man, one thing just, you're pulling out of the parking lot and the steering wheel just comes off. And you wonder, did God choose me and I just turned out to be a lemon? That doesn't happen with God. On the one hand, I want to tell you God only saves lemons. <laughs> but the good news is he, he totally knew what he was getting. He knew everything. He knew the ebbs and the flows. He chose you with full knowledge of what it was going to be like. So you don't need to worry that he's ever going to abandon you. He doesn't learn anything new. He doesn't say, ah, if I had known that, oh man. He chose you and not because you were lovely, but he chose you and that's why you become lovely. He chose you not because you were holy, but that's why you will become holy. He chose you because he wanted you. 
And you may feel so unwanted in this life. But do you believe in Christ? Look, he'll never cast out any who come to him. This is the grace of God. And it's to be done to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he has graciously bestowed on us in the beloved. This means that none of this can be separated from Christ, as we've already seen. It's all in him. It's all through him. It's adoption through Jesus Christ as sons. And it can't stop short of praise. What election ought to make us all do is praise God. It's praise God. That's what Romans 11 concludes with. Talking about all these things, for, well, what do I have to say now? From him and to him and through him be all things. To him be the glory forever and ever. What does Paul say here? Think of the Father. He says, to the praise of the glory of your grace. To the glory, that is the weight, the weightiness of your grace. I, I heard it wonderfully described as glory is the imprint you make in the sand. What kind of imprint does the grace of God make on people? An indelible imprint. It completely changes them. The mark is the weight of his grace. What did he do? He graciously bestowed. Literally, he, all I can say is, he graced us in the beloved. What the Father did is grace us in the Son. He united us to the Son. And so we have every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Praise God the Father because he chose us. He chose us before anything. We must be holy and because he chose us, we will be holy. He chose us so that he'd be our father and he chose us simply because of the good pleasure of his will. He chose us and so we praise him for the weight of the glory of his grace. Let's pray. God, all of who you are is immense and almost too much for us, but we see this wonderful truth that before we chose you, you chose us. And God, we simply want to worship you for that. Help us to be conformed to the image of your Son. Would you be glorified in these lives that you've redeemed. For us all in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.